If you have your Bibles, open up to John chapter 21, last chapter in John's Gospel. Uh, we have been in a series called March to the Cross. We've been looking at five, uh, five chapters uh, in particularly, John 13 to John 17, that all deal around a Last Supper in an upper room between Jesus and his disciples. Uh, within it, Jesus gives a lot of last words of encouragement, correction, teaching. Uh, he models servant leadership and radical love in his interactions with the disciples in the upper room. And then ultimately, he would leave there, go to the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, which is known as the place of the press. He would begin to perspire blood. Um, uh, James, or excuse me, John, Peter uh, would be there praying with him, struggling to stay awake, not understanding what's going on. Then Judas with a temple guard would come and arrest him. He would be tried in the middle of the night, sentenced to death, scourged by uh, Pontius Pilate, mocked through the streets down the Via Della Rosa, ultimately being crucified on Golgotha where he hung naked. And his death, according to Scripture, was not a tragedy, but it was a triumph. It was not an accident. It was intentional. And it was so that the sins of the world and our first father, Adam, and all of us who were born after him would be reconciled in Christ, who is the greater Adam, who has come to give us salvation and everlasting life. Now, in the middle of this entire story, uh, we are presented with a very uh, relatable character in the Bible. His name is Peter. And the reason I love Peter is he is a person that has great intentions but significant limitations. He has great intentions. He desires for God's kingdom to come. He wants to see Jesus reign and Jesus rule in a practical and real way. He's willing to pull a sword in order to make it happen. However, he's often blinded by the fact that he is extremely flawed. Uh, Peter is the kind of person that speaks first and apologizes later. Any of you can relate? Any of you married to someone who speaks first and apologizes later? Any of you, any of you with that person? Any of you are that person? Like you constantly say stuff and after you say it, you're in the car and you think, we probably should not have said that. And then you're having to send apology text with emojis to express <laughs> the contrition for which you feel over what you have shared with them. Well, this story today deals with Peter uh, overestimating his abilities, and as a result of it needing a significant Savior that would eclipse him with a power that was greater than his limitations. Look at the text with me. John chapter 21 it says this, Later, after the resurrection, uh, Jesus has appeared twice now to the disciples as a group. This is the third time in, verse, in chapter 21 that he's appearing to the disciples as a group. It says, Later, Jesus appeared again to the disciples beside the Sea of Galilee. And this is how it happened. Several of the disciples were there, Simon Peter, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zeb, and two other disciples. Simon Peter said, I'm going fishing. Look at what the disciples said. We'll come too, they all said. So they went out in the boat, but they caught nothing all night. At dawn, Jesus was standing on the beach, but the disciples couldn't see who he was. He called out, fellows, have you caught any fish? No, they replied. Then he said, throw out your net to the other side of the boat and you'll get some. So they did, and they couldn't haul in the net because there were so many fish. So Peter has gone farther than he ever thought he would go. He's done something that he didn't think was possible just 30 days prior. Now, 30 days after the resurrection of Jesus, all of the disciples are dealing with the fact 
that they abandoned Jesus in his hour of need and failed to be there. He, cruci- he was crucified and he died, and they, hi- they hid in an upper room while it happened. Many of them scattered and running. And three days later, this Jesus who they abandoned resurrects from the dead. Imagine the myriad of emotions that you would be going through knowing that you were his closest friends and companions. And you weren't there whenever he perhaps needed you most in his life. You couldn't even stay awake to pray. You just slept knowing that with Jesus everything was going to be all right while he perspires blood on his way to the most gruesome and horrific of deaths. And in the, in the middle of that, you now for 30 days have had to wrestle with your failure. Does Jesus still want anything to do with us? Sure, he comes around and tolerates us, but does he love us? Sure, he has appeared to us, but does he desire for us to be a part of his kingdom and his kingdom work? Maybe some of you, this isn't just a theoretical idea, Uh, you've lived long enough to have significant desires for what you want to do for God. You wanted to and intended to do something great for God. You were willing to move across a country and move into the 1040 window where Christians were persecuted, or you want to do great things for God, and at a conference you felt a call from God, and you stood up and responded to that, only to find your own fears, your own worries, or the distractions of this world to take your attention away from that, and now years have stacked on top of that memory of what you thought was a call from God that's turned into nothing but, well, maybe we heard God wrong. Maybe it's even worse. Maybe you walked out in that calling, but not counting the full cost of what it would cost to walk in the path of obedience, you got halfway into it, and in the halfway mark, turned around and went back home. That's what's going on in this story. If you go all the way back uh, to uh, Mark chapter 1, Peter, James, and John were fishing. And in Mark chapter 1, they're in a place that's significant. Look at what it says. One day, as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew throwing a net into the water, for they fished for a living. Jesus called out to them, Come follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people. Okay, that's weird no matter what context historically you put it in. You read it in Greek, it's still weird. You, like then, you didn't fish for people. Now, you don't literally fish for people. It's kind of a weird calling. Yet, verse 18, look at what it says. Uh, and they left their nets at once and followed him. A little farther up the shore, Jesus saw Zeb's sons, James and John, in a boat repairing their nets. He called them at once, and they also followed him, leaving their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men. So where are they at when when their calling happens? They're in Galilee. And what are they doing? They're fishing. Okay. Jesus appeared to them later, verse 1, chapter 21, again to the disciples beside the sea of What have they done? They've run back to where they started. That's what failure does when you don't understand grace. Whenever you start out in ministry or you try and do something great for God and it doesn't go the way that you had written the story in your mind, you then immediately become Jesus' PR firm. And you begin to try and write stories in your mind that excuse the fact that it didn't go the way that you thought it would go instead of pressing into the difficulty of it being tough. And so you end up finding yourself when you don't know how to go forward retreating back. And for a lot of us, this is where we've been. When you don't know the way forward, you often retreat back. In Galilee, Jesus found Peter, James, and John, 
And it's in Galilee after their failure that Jesus comes to find them once again. And what are they doing? They're fishing. So they started out fishing, and they go back trying to fish again. But here's the problem. When God puts a calling in your life, when he calls you into not a thing, but a long, dependent, Holy Spirit-led walk, okay? Let me, let me be clear. You are called not to a thing. You may be called to a lot of things. But you are called to an intimate, Christ-empowered, Spirit-filled life. That is the baseline, no matter what season you are in, of your calling. It's to live in quorum Dio, face-to-face fellowship with God. Okay? So if you're a follower of Jesus, our calling is to now live life not as a practical atheist, as if he doesn't exist, as if he's not present, as if it doesn't matter to God, but it's now to live quorum Dio, as if God is present, empowering, leading, and active in your life. And so we now live out a calling that is only explainable by the power of God and only achievable by his provision in our life. And so the Christian life, if it can be explained, if your relationship with Jesus can be explained apart from the presence of God, then it may not be biblical Christianity. It may be man-made religion. The spirit-filled life, though, is what we're called to, and it is a life that is only explainable as God intervened, God empowered, God enabled, God opened the door, God provided the path, And as a result of it, we walked out and saw God do what we could not do in and of ourselves. I mean, you got to understand, what we have on hand here are 11 cowards who are going to turn in a few chapters into 11 bold witnesses. The only change is a resurrection that intersects the failure of their cowardice and turns them into these bold witnesses that stand in public squares where they were once afraid to witness to the gospel of Jesus, and to coming to the point of boldly proclaiming the gospel of Jesus, to the fact that the majority of them go on to die a martyr's death. You see, the, the, the disciples in and of themselves, no matter how good their intentions are, their limitations and their fears superseded them doing anything that is of significance for God's kingdom. And Jesus intercepts that, uh, that failure with his spirit and his resurrection. And as a result, they go on to preach and proclaim the gospel to the very ends of the earth by the end of the book of Acts. It's an incredible thing. Chuck Swindoll, in this moment that we're looking at in verses 1 to 3, as they've gone back to fishing, says this, I'm going fishing was not, uh, was not merely a plan to pass the unbearable meantime. Peter Ever the man of action saw no future for himself in service to Christ. For some of you, that may be where you're at. I don't have a future there, so I better go make a future here. I shouldn't expect, since it didn't come through and it didn't happen in the time frame that I thought it would happen here, and that door seems to be shut, I shouldn't expect that God's in whatever I'm in now. I'm going to go and build. I'm going to go and establish. I'm going to go and... Make a plan B. (laughs) He saw no door for service to Christ, so he returned to his successful pre-Christian vocation. And he says the word successful, but if you look at verse 3, it tells us this detail. Simon Peter said, I'm going fishing, we'll come too, they all said. So they went out in the boat, they caught nothing. Because here's the problem. When you've experienced life by the power of the Spirit, and then you go back to trying to live life by the power of the flesh, it never satisfies 
So you can start out not knowing Jesus, and you're completely happy in the mud. You're completely happy living a carnal life. But then you experience what it's like to live empowered by the Spirit of God and to be refreshed and supplied by His Spirit in your life. And you try and turn from a Spirit-filled way of living back to a carnal way of living, and you're miserable, and it doesn't work. Why? Because there's nothing like living in Coram Dio, face-to-face fellowship with God. Now look at what happens in verse 4. In the middle of their failure, they can't even fish. They can't even go back to their old way of living. There's, there's like no, no consolation bracket here that they can find comfort in. Verse 4, at dawn, Jesus was standing on the beach, but the disciples couldn't see who he was. He called out, fellows, have you caught any fish? No, they replied. Then he said, throw out your net on the right side of the boat, and you'll get some. So they did, and they couldn't haul it in because there were so many fish in it. And look, look at the pettiness that's in the text. Verse 7. Then the disciple Jesus loved. Who is that? John. Who's writing this book? Okay. I mean, come on, John. He gives himself this title. The disciple who Jesus loved, who also abandoned Jesus in his hour of need, said to Peter, it's the Lord. I figured it out. I mean, do you see the pettiness that's in the text of this. Now, this isn't the first time Jesus has done something like this, let down your nets. If you go back to Luke chapter 5, whenever this whole thing started, they couldn't catch anything. And Jesus says, let down your nets, and he puts fish in their nets. You see, the disciples in their fear and failure had gone back to what was familiar, but they had forgotten a major detail. And the major detail is, when you get into relationship with Jesus, he receives you, keeps you, and holds you no matter what. Which means, when you try to slide back into the old way of living, he already is back there waiting to bring you forward into the new way that he's called you to live. Jesus is not at the crime scene of your past assessing what happened. Jesus isn't standing in your promises carnally of what you'll do for him in the future, waiting on you to achieve it so that you can have fellowship with him again. Some of y'all ain't getting that. Let me make sure you got it. Whatever it was that made you turn away and go back to the old way of living, that, that made you readjust and say, man, the Christian way just may not be the way for me, or I just can't be that dedicated to it because these things aren't going to get done, or I'm not going, whatever it is that caused you in your mind to think, I can't stay in Coram Dio walking by the Spirit and not in the flesh with Jesus, so I need to carnally rise up in my self-sufficiency and go back to the old way of living and try and make up for lost time and make up for what went wrong. What you need to know is that Jesus will not be in the endeavor of letting you run down that path, but he will be ahead of you waiting for the end of it because he's a God of grace and mercy. We were taught in lifeguard school, whenever someone is struggling to swim, okay? Yes, I I was a lifeguard. No, I was not Hasselhoff. But in my mind, at 16, when I was running by that pool at Lakeside, (laughs) anyway. We were taught that some people, when they're struggling, you can't save them until they fight for a while. So they got, they got, to, they got to wrestle. They got to, like, get it all out of their system. And then, about the time, they're exhausted, and they go under. You jump in and you grab them, because it's in that moment of surrender that you can actually be helpful and save them. One of the forms of the wrath of God 
is he allows a lot of us in our carnality to say that we're going to go and achieve and we're going to go and do. And he goes, okay, let's see how that goes. And he lets you run down that path. And for some of you, you experience success. It goes well, but it doesn't satisfy because you don't have the presence of God that's supplying and walking with you in it. You're doing it for God, not by God. You see, it's by him, for him, through him, and to him are all things, not by you so that you can present it to him. You see, by you is man-made religion. By you is you drumming up a, out of duty, a sense of like you putting God in some kind of debt or paying back some debt to God. But our works, our good works as Christians has nothing to do with paying God back. It comes out of an adoration and love that because we love God, wants to walk in fellowship with God. And because we're walking in fellowship with God, we get on mission with him because the spirit fills us and opens our eyes to, not, to, to, to see what the world cannot see and to love in a way the world that cannot love. And what ends up happening is something transformative happens in the way that we live. So Jesus meets us in our slide. For some of us, after years of fighting to do it ourselves, for some of us, after years of fighting the fact that we need to surrender because we're weak or we're insufficient to fulfill the call that God has on our life. And so you've wrestled in trying to make yourself approvable when you were already approved at the cross of Christ. You've wrestled trying to prove your value whenever you already have seen it demonstrated by what Jesus did to purchase your life through his sacrifice for you. Mark 14, before Peter's fall, and before the disciples ever thought to go back to Galilee, and before they ever thought to go back to fishing in the old way of living, Jesus said this. On the way, as they're going to the Last Supper, Jesus told them, All of you will desert me, for the scriptures say, God will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Now here's the incredible detail. Peter's doing what he thinks is natural. Go to Galilee and fish. Jesus already had a plan. But after I am raised from the dead, I will go ahead of you. You knew we'd be here? You, you, you knew it wasn't going to go the way that we thought it was going to go and that we were carnally going to rise up and think that we could, could fix it and, 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 and you, you, you were here the whole time? I thought I was running away from you in your will, and even in my rebellion, I end up in your presence? He taught this story about a good shepherd that leaves 99 to find one. And now they're, they're discovering it to be a reality because Jesus knew Galilee would be the running spot. And he knew it would be there that they would try to regroup and in their self-sufficiency rebuild their lives. And it's there that his resurrection intersects the, their failure. Now there's some significant details that happen. We often, whenever we don't know a way forward, we retreat back. That's the first point I gave you. So then whenever we try to slide back into the old way of living, Jesus meets us in the slide. That's the second point I want you to see. But there's some unique details that happen in the restoration process that come in verse 9. I'll read verse 7 to get us there. Look at it with me. Pick it up in verse 7. It says, the disciples, Then the disciple who Jesus loved, thanks John for that note, said to Peter, it's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, John was probably sorry that he told him it was the Lord because he put off his tunic, for he stripped it off for work, and he jumped in the water and headed to shore and left them with all the fish. That's why I love Peter. Peter's like, y'all keep the fish, I'm getting Jesus. 
I may have screwed up. I may, I may have cut off the wrong ear. I may have been aggressive at the wrong time and passive at the, at the wrong time. Like I may be getting it wrong over and over again, but you tell me Jesus is on the shore and there's gold bars in a net. I'm going for Jesus on the shore. Y'all keep your gold bars. So he jumps in the water. All right, that's, that's good. Let's give him some credit here. That's a good response. Verse 8, the other stayed in the boat and pulled the loaded net to shore, for they were only about 100 yards from shore. When they got there, this is interesting, there's four details here. When they got there, they found breakfast waiting for them, fish cooking over a charcoal fire, and some bread. Now this is interesting. Why does John think it's important for you and I to know that in this restoration, in this restoration, it's going to happen at breakfast over a charcoal fire. Why that detail? If you go back to John 18, 18, there's some insight that I think we get into this. Look at it with me. In the middle of Peter denying Jesus between the first and second time, in John 18, 18, it says this. Look at it with me. As I flip there, because I didn't give it to them. It's my fault. John 18, 18, it says, Because it was cold... The household servants and the guards had made a charcoal fire. Where's Peter denying Jesus? Charcoal fire. Where's Jesus meeting with Peter? Charcoal fire. God's not avoiding your failure. Your new season of ministry is probably through the failure that you're ashamed to talk about. What God has for you often comes through a meeting around the charcoal fire that you don't want anyone to see. I remember there was a pastor, there's this series of videos called I Am Second that came out and it was testimonies from lots of different people, a pretty incredible thing. And there was this pastor who got so sexually addicted that he was uh, actually like before services going out and soliciting prostitutes before that service. And, and, and he had this lie that if it ever came out, it would be the end of him, that it, everything would be over for him, that, that he never could bring it forward. But he was trapped, and he was disingenuous, and he was carnal in his ministry, and he wasn't being fruitful in his ministry. And as the Psalms teach us, when you're silent about your sin, the hand of the Lord's heavy upon you day and night. Your bones, they melt away whenever you know Jesus, and he's convicting and inviting you into the light, and you're hiding in the darkness in your sin. And so he finally comes clean, and what's amazing is God launched a complete restoration in his life and an entire new ministry over his charcoal fire. What was he thought the burning down of his life became the establishing of a ministry into people's lives who were caught in the same sin and the same addiction and had no way out. My, my encouragement to you is in this detail, what we see is not Jesus avoiding the failure, but Jesus using the failure to bring something good out of it. He had already prepared a charcoal fire. That's the first detail. The second detail is Jesus had fish already cooking on the fire. So the disciples are dragging in a net full of what? Fish. But he's already got fish on the fire. A couple questions I have being just a weird ADD kid. Where did Jesus catch the fish? Did he whistle? And they like jumped on the fire because he's Jesus. I mean, like, like how did that happen? Like, what's going on? But the, the point of it, I believe, in giving us the detail that Jesus already had fish on the fire is that Jesus doesn't need the disciples' fish to accomplish his work and his will. And this is a humbling moment. Because for a lot of you, you only go where you feel useful because you get your significance out of being competent. And what you don't understand is that it is in your weakness that God's power is perfected. 
and your self-deceptiveness that thinks I am competent may be keeping you from a God dependency that makes you powerful. God doesn't need you, but he chooses you over and over again. <laughs> what? And that's, that's amazing to me. I'm not, I don't add value. If I shut up, and you all shut up, and no one cried out, the rocks will cry out. Like that, That's what the scriptures teach. So he doesn't have to have your voice, but he lets me go to work with him. I get to go to work with that. I get to be a part of taking what's frivolous and it being made useful in God's kingdom. So he doesn't need me, but he chooses me. He already had fish on the fire. That's the second thing. The third thing is we're told he already had made bread. He had some bread that was there. What is that pointing to? It's pointing to a reminder. If you look at the map where the disciples were in Galilee, there's a uh, hill that they likely were having breakfast on that overlooked a valley called the wilderness. That wilderness, by archaeological studies, is believed to be the place where Jesus had fed 5,000 people with a few fish and few loaves. So, so, so think about the story. Yes, you failed. Let's meet in it. Okay? I don't need you. I choose you. And remember, I've got the bread. I am the bread of life. I empower the work of ministry. I supply my people for my business. And it's, when it's my will, it's my bill. He brings the bread. He brings the fish. He meets and gathers with them over a charcoal fire. And then look at what happens in verse 10. Verse 10, he says, bring some of the fish you've just caught. He allows the fruit of their labor to be placed on his table. Let me make sure you get this. Some of you, you, you work a job and you're like, it doesn't matter. I'm just a florist. I'm just a teacher. I'm just a garbage man. I'm just a mom. It doesn't feel like I'm changing God's kingdom in those things. Well, here's the theology of work in brief. You ready? God provides provision so that you then in that provision can use the gifts God's given you, the work God's given you, the time God's given you in a way that counts at his table. God takes what you do and he makes it of eternal value as a prey. So the Christian life is this tension of divine help given to human effort. It's not, God, if you want to reach them, then teleport us. Because you did that in Acts once. If you want to reach them, then like magically make us stand up. If you want to reach them, magically make my mouth open. No, your effort is involved. But it is divinely empowered or it is useless for the kingdom of God. So it's God's divine power, his gifts, his work, his provision, his power at work through your effort that then brings this echo of glory to God and how he took what was normal and mundane and used it for something glorious in his kingdom. The end of, in the book of Revelation, we're around the table, they're drinking the new wine. I won't get into details that offend anyone with that. They're drinking the new wine, and it says they raised the cup of Moses. I've talked about this before. The idea is 
at the heavenly banquet, we begin to remember all the work God did by his provision through human effort, and we begin to give him glory. And so Moses, at the feast perhaps, stands up and raises the cup and says, I was a murderer. I ran away to the backwoods of nowhere. But God had a charcoal fire called a burning bush. And he met me. And he called me to go to Pharaoh. And I didn't believe it was possible. And I gave him every excuse and reason not to use me. Yet he sent me. And God broke us free from Pharaoh and parted water for us. And we walked through on dry ground and rained on manna before us and provided food for us in the wilderness. And he raises a praise and there's praise to God. He has glory to God that he did that. And the idea is perhaps, perhaps, because, I mean, it's not just people like Moses. You remember the woman that, that cried over Jesus' feet and the Pharisees that ridiculed her? All right, I know I'm connecting dots here, and some of you are like, this is crazy. It makes me uncomfortable. How, you're just jumping all over the Bible. It's, it's normal. It's just part of what happens when you come here. Um, she's crying tears, and the, the Pharisees are like, why would you let her touch him? And, and what does Jesus say? What she's done will be talked about forever. So maybe she, after Moses gets the cup, the harlot, the woman who was in the lowest position of society, she was a product, not an image bearer. But he saw her as an image bearer worthy of being redeemed. And she raises the cup because she was broken free from her bondage. And then maybe you and I, I was a stay-at-home mom, depressed, lonely. And God took that loneliness and made it a ministry. And God used me to encourage and build up other single moms who were not seeing God's purpose in there. I was teaching. And every other teacher had quit because 2020. <laughs> I mean, they were showing up, but they had quit. But I kept loving the kids even then they weren't lovely because God was there. And Jesus used that effort for something glorious. And now look at these kids whose lives were... You get the idea. God takes what they had done in their effort and he adds it to his table. Luther, I love Martin Luther. I like King Jr. too, but this is the older Luther. He said, <laughs> he, he said this. Um, Luther asserted, our righteousness before God, that's quorum Dio, is received and defined by faith. So we're not made right by what we do, okay? So then why do we do good works? Well, look what he goes on to say. Our righteousness before another, that's our neighbor, that's Coromundo, on the other hand, is actively defined by service. God doesn't need your fish, but your neighbor may. And what I'm told, according to Scripture, is in whatever I do, I'm to do it to the glory of Okay. So if it all matters to God, it's all in the face of God, it's his provision and my effort... Then who benefits from the fish that I bring to the table? Well, my neighbor benefits from it because my neighbor may need a fish because it may be from the fish of his blessing in my ministry that allows others to hear the gospel and off of the fruit of what he does in my life, he brings others to the table of life through his restoration. You see, God doesn't need your good works, but he empowers you to a good work that will witness to and benefit your neighbor. So what's the motivation for that effort? What's the motivation for that service? Well, that's the next part of the text. After breakfast, according to John 
21, verse 15, it says this. After breakfast, John 21, 15, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? So I'm not working to be loved. It's out of love that I serve. I don't say no to sin because I'm a Christian and I ought to. I say no to sin because I'm devoted to Jesus and I love him. And when it's about love, it's easier to say no because what you love most ultimately trumps what you like whenever the two are put side by side. That's why Jesus says you cannot serve both God and Oh, yeah, we'll get there. Let's meddle. You'll love one and hate the other. So love motivates you to do a lot of things. Some of you loved drugs. So you were willing to sacrifice every human relationship for it. Some of you loved alcohol. So you were willing to sacrifice everything for it. Some of you, you you love sex. And you're willing to sacrifice everything for it. See, what, what we have in the wrestling match of life is a wrestling of loves. What do you love? Because what you love is demonstrated in the pursuit of your life and the actions that you demonstrate. Your actions speak to the heart and its adoration. So the question Jesus asked Simon Peter is, did you fail? No. Simon, son of John, which by the way, he's already confessed Jesus and had his name changed, but he's being called what? That's his old name. Why? Really quick. Why? Many people believe it's been around 30 days since Jesus has risen from the dead. More than likely, this is the name that Peter's been sulking in for 30 days. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied. You know I love you. Then feed my lambs. And most of us are like, he answered the question right. Oh, just wait. 16. Jesus repeated the question. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said. You know I love you. Then take care of my sheep. He's answering the question right. Okay. Jesus said. A third time, he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt. What in the world's going on? Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time. And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Okay, there's... Three words for love. Many of you have heard a preacher talk about this in the New Testament. Because there's a difference between loving a cheeseburger and loving your wife, or there should be at least. Okay? <laughs> so in the Greek, you get three ways of communicating love. There's eros, okay? Eros is the emotional middle school love. It's, it's that more than a feeling. Okay, all right, it's, it's that. <clears throat> it's the tingle. For a lot of us, that's the only kind of love we, we know. It's transactional. It's there as long as the feeling's there. It's gone when the feeling's gone. Okay? That's not the word being used in this context. The, the second word is phileo or philia. And it's a warm affection shared by friends, family, etc. There's a third kind of love. The third kind of love is agape. It's used to describe in the text God's love towards you. And in that, what we know is it's steady it's deliberate, and it's loyal. You ask Peter in John 13 in the upper room when he's saying, I'll die with you. What's Peter saying? I'm agape. I intend to be steadfast, to be faithful, to be loyal to you. But if you look at the Greek in the text, it reads actually more like this. Jesus looks at Simon, son of John, and he says, do you agape 
me. Oh, I want to. But, but Peter's lived long enough to be afraid of his limitations. He's lived long enough to know that he's cashed checks with his mouth that he couldn't back up with his actions. Maybe you can relate. And as a result of it, he says, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. Here's what's amazing. Jesus commissions him even though his love isn't the deepest level of love. I used to think that the people God used just walked on some supernatural plane ethically to where they never stumbled or failed in temptation and they always fulfilled their commitments. They were just more disciplined than me. And what I needed was I just needed to be more disciplined so I would lie to make up for the gap. I would lie to myself. I would lie to other believers, which meant I was more of a discouragement to them than an encouragement because no one wants to hear about how you're a superhero and you get it right all the time. And if your preacher is only, only always getting it right and they're basically just like Jesus and your preacher, then they probably aren't being honest because it's more like there's all of us and then there's Jesus and we really need a lot of help down here. Here's, here's what I've learned. The people God uses are honest. They, they deal with the reality. I want to do great things for you, God, but I am limited. I would love to tell you I intend to follow through on it, but I know that I have failed weeks on top of weeks, on top of months, on top of years, every time that temptation comes on Tuesday. So I'd love to sit here on a Sunday and say, I agape you. But if I'm being honest, Phileo you. And look what he goes on to say again a second time. Simon, son of John, do you agape me? Yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you, shepherd my sheep. So a third time, and this is why the grief comes. Jesus looks at him and says, Simon, son of John, do you phileo me? And that hurts. Because Peter knows I've failed, I've screwed up, I've fallen short. I've done things I never dreamed that I would do. I've let you down in ways that I never dreamt that I would let you down. I intended so much more, but my limitations have taken over in significant ways. And the question comes, but do you love me as a friend? Do you love me as a brother? And Peter's like, oh, he's questioning that. Oh, Jesus, I am imperfect. And you know all things. And you know that I may not be at agape. I may not be, I'll die with you today. But I am at phileo, you. And he says, tend my sheep. Look at verse 18. Look at what it goes on. Here, quick. I tell you the truth. When you were young, you were able to do as you liked. You dressed yourself and went whenever you wanted to go. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and others will dress you and take you where you do not want to go. What in the world does that have to do with anything? What a weird line. Here's what he's saying. Peter, when you were immature and young in your faith, you were so confident in what you could do for me, how you could add value to me. You thought you were useful and I needed you. But now you're old and you understand you can't even dress yourself. You understand it's going to be me or it's not going to happen. You understand that you're going to have to depend on me. And here's what's amazing. There's a prophecy in this text. He gives him a foreshadowing that though he is in phileo, today. 
he will die in agape. How did Peter die? It's believed that he was crucified upside down because he didn't deem himself worthy to be crucified in the same manner as his Savior. (laughs) The coward that denied him over the charcoal fire gets restored over a charcoal fire. And for a lot of us, we may think that was the end of the story. It was the failure in the fire. But over the fire, Peter gets restored and he dies in a glorious way, professing Jesus as the risen Lord in spite of the pain, in spite of the persecution, rejoicing in it. So here's what I want you to hear. Jesus is already ahead of the failure. He knew your downside before he ever called you. He knew your U-turns and your detours and your dead ends. And he still said, come and follow me. He is the God of restoration. He is the God of mercy. He is the God of grace. He's not asking you prove you're valuable to me. He's inviting you to live dependent upon him. After all, it's in your weakness that his power is made strong. So I want to invite you to the crucified life, a life that is marked, filled, and empowered by the Holy Spirit, a life that doesn't boast in self-sufficiency, but boasts in God-dependency, a life that daily says, apart from Christ, It's meaningless. It's not worthy. I'm not able. It's very normal. But he who lives in me is greater than anything that is in this world. And because he is here, and because he's not quit, greater is he than what stands in front of me. So we're going to, in boldness, go into the presence of God. In boldness, we're going to run after God. Even though we may stumble a hundred times, even though we may fail tragically a hundred times, we are going to go so that in our weakness, people will see the power of God made known in us. So, brother and sister, stop trying to pay for a past that Jesus' blood has already dealt with. Stop, stop, stop trying to pay a bill that Jesus' blood already paid. Stop making promises about what you're going to do for God and know that all he's asking is that you would depend on him. We're going to have our prayer team here. For some of you this morning, I believe this is a day of restoration, just like it was a day of restoration for Peter, where there are things that you don't even utter out loud anymore because you just think they feel like such an impossibility. There's been so much failure and so much time that's passed and you don't even want to speak up that this is what you feel like God's called or God, like it is, you can't even get it out. For some of you, that it's time for that dream that God gave you by his terms and on his timeline to come alive again. We'd love to pray with you. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, we'd love to talk with you about what it means to have a relationship with Jesus today. He invites whosoever. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to make a promise of future change behavior. You just got to come knowing you need him. And if you know you need him, it's likely the Holy Spirit that's bringing you to that realization. And he's knocking on the door of your heart going, hey, I'm not, I'm not looking for you to sign up. I'm looking for you to declare dependency on me. And if that's you, we would love to talk with you about what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. Let's stand to our feet. Let's respond as the Lord leads. In Jesus' name.